Welcome back to State Local Government. This is Mark Johnson from M State Moorhead. This is part two of episode 11 on government finance, and in this half, we're talking about taxes. So, in the last unit, we talked about how governments spend money or how they just go about the process of deciding how to spend money. So, now the question is how do they get the revenue in the first place to pay for all this stuff? Well, as you've probably figured out by now, they get it from taxes, sometimes fees, but uh, mostly it comes in the form of some sort of taxation. Now, the textbook talks about various types of taxations. I've posted a bunch of outside resources on that. I'm not going to focus on all of them, but I want to talk about the major ones here, at least briefly. First one is individual income, and hopefully this is self-explanatory. Um, you pay based on how much money you make. Uh, Every April 15th or thereabouts, and now recently because of COVID, they keep pushing these back into May. But, you know, for traditionally most of my lifetime, it's been April 15th is tax day. You file this form with the federal government, the 1040, the 1040 a the 1040-EZ, whatever, they, and they keep changing the form numbers also. But you file that form with the IRS, and you tell them how much they make, and then you figure out how much you owe in federal income taxes. Now, most states also assess income taxes. When you file the federal form, you usually have to mail the state tax department a separate state form as well. Uh, almost all states use a graduated income tax. What that means is the rate goes up as the level of personal income goes up. So let's say I make $100,000 a year and you make $25,000 a year. In most states, not only would I pay more, but the actual rate, the percentage I pay would actually be higher for me than it would for you. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about, in a little while, about theories of taxation, particularly theories of progressive and regressive taxation. We'll come back to this example. There are some local governments, usually cities, that also impose personal income taxes. Most, many states don't allow this, but um, as the Tax Policy Foundation reading indicates in the outside sources for this week, these do exist in about a dozen states. Next up is sales taxes. Most states have these. Um, you pay you pay them. Probably everybody in this class has paid them probably within the last couple of days um, when you bought something at the retail level. Um, now, some states do exempt certain items. For example, Minnesota doesn't tax, uh, they don't charge sales tax on clothing, at least most types of clothing. North Dakota, by contrast, does. Um, North Dakota does not tax groceries. South Dakota charges sales tax on both groceries and clothing. Now, South Dakota doesn't have an income tax, so they have to get more revenue from the sales tax, which is one of the reasons why they don't have as many exemptions. Um, also, many local governments, usually cities, but sometimes in some states, counties can do this also, uh, can tack on an extra sales tax percentage point or two. Uh, you might remember the distinction in the last unit on local government between general law cities and home rule cities. In some of the states that allow government, local governments to charge sales tax, they actually have a, a a universal rate. They might say, "Oh, every general every general law city in the state, if they want to, can charge an extra one percent across the entire state." Um, but then they also might allow home rule cities to charge more because remember, in home rule cities, the voters passed amendments to their city charters in almost all cases, and those then those cities um, 
then get to charge higher tax rates because the voters in that city voted to allow that. We're also going to find out in this unit that there, particularly when you work on your case studies, that there are a few states where there is a state sales tax, but they specifically don't allow local governments to charge an extra sales tax. And there's one state which has no general sales tax, but they still allow counties and cities to charge a local sales tax. Next, we come to real property tax. Um, these are almost always assessed by local governments, not by state governments. Uh, and they're assessed based on the value of real estate, land, buildings, and that includes houses. Um, when you hear people talk about property taxes, this is actually this is usually what they're talking about. They're actually talking about real property taxes. They're talking about the, the real estate tax, right? Their property, their house, the building that their business is in, that sort of thing. If you've ever looked at a property tax bill, um, they will usually include an assessed value. So they'll say, oh, this land and building is worth X number of dollars. And then they'll list the mill rates. These are the rates which are charged a percentage of the value of the property. And then they'll list, list them out. Here's how much the county collects. Here's how much the city collects. Here's how much the school district collects. Here's how much the township collects, et cetera, that are charging real property tax in that area. Again, very few states actually have a state property tax. They are only assessed and collected generally by local governments. Now, by contrast, there's something also called a personal property tax. These tend to be assessed, depending on where you live, by both local and or state governments. They are a form of property tax. But now, particularly for those of you who live in this area, if you live in the Fargo-Moorhead area or any of the rural areas around here, you might actually, actually not know what these are because we don't have a lot of them in this particular area. What these are is they're taxes on movable property, uh, but particularly property value. Things like the, your boat, your car, your motorcycle, um, your ATV. Now, we, I'm not talking about the I'm not talking about the registration fee. I'm talking about an extra tax that you pay, not just when you buy it, but you actually pay an extra tax every year just for the right to have it, just for the right to own them. Um, some states uh, charge them on jewelry over a certain dollar amount. Um, a couple of states assess them on stock and bond certificates. Uh, there's a couple of suburbs down in the Twin Cities that assess these on personal watercraft and ATVs. Um, if anyone remembers Jesse Ventura, before he was Governor Jesse Ventura, he was the mayor of Brooklyn Park. And his big issue in the very first campaign when he ran for mayor of Brooklyn Park, he was angry because the personal property tax on jet skis kept going up every year in Brooklyn Park. And he owned like four of them. So... Uh, he was um, not very happy about this and so ran um, uh, ran this campaign on the basis of that. Um, except, for, again, a couple of places down in the Twin Cities, you don't hear much about these in these re regions of the country. Um, many, many, many years ago, if you're from North Dakota, maybe your grandparents or great-grandparents, if they're still living, might remember this. North Dakota had a personal property tax on household items, like furniture and tools and things like that. Um, the county tax assessors basically gave up trying to calculate it because they would you know, they would go out to a house and you know, try to figure out, is that tool worth $100 or $10 or $5? Of course, they all wanted to assess it at huge values. And the homeowner said, no, nah, that's an old hammer. It's not worth, you know, it's worth 50 cents. And there was such a, it was such a difficult thing to collect and such a difficult thing to assess. And finally, the state legislature just said, let's just forget it because it's not worth collecting.
the last uh, major tax category I want to talk about are excise taxes, also known as sin taxes. These are generally charged on things of um, often considered luxury goods or higher value goods, particularly alcohol, tobacco, and gasoline. Um, both, both the federal and state governments actually charge them on gas. So if you pump a gallon of gas in your car, not only are you paying for the gas, you're also paying a federal road tax and a state road tax. Um, the federal government taxes some types of alcohol, particularly distilled spirits, um, whereas the states primarily tax beer and wine. Um, then you have tobacco taxes, which are generally assessed by state governments. Um, and those of you who live in Minnesota or North Dakota might be aware of this. The tobacco tax in Minnesota is quite much, quite a bit higher than it is in North Dakota. And so uh, every time I have a student in Moorhead who smokes and I bring this up, they say, oh yeah, I always buy my cigarettes over in North Dakota because the tax is so much less. Uh, again, those are, and those are, again, these rates are all going to vary a bit from state to state and exactly what do they charge them on. Um, most of these items are not actually subject to sales taxes because the excise taxes, which tend to be a lot higher than the sales tax, are being assessed instead. Uh, when tax specialists, legislators, and budget calculators tend to talk about the, um, the fairest way to tax people or the fairest way to tax activity, they end up oftentimes talking in terms of progressive versus regressive taxes. So what does this mean? Progressive taxes are those which are designed to more heavily tax someone based upon their wealth. The graduated income tax, where the rate of tax goes up in a system of tax brackets, tax brackets talked about that you know, a couple of minutes ago. That's the only progressive form used in most American jurisdictions. In the discussion above, you might remember I talked about these different rates. Let's say hypothetically that there are three tax rates in a state, 2%, 5%, 7%. Those making the least amount of money would pay the 2%. Those in the middle pay the 5%, and the wealthiest pay 7%. Now, again, these are just hypothetical examples. We're not going to talk about deductions, exemptions. That gets even more complicated. But the theory however, is somewhat simple. The wealthy are assumed to be able to pay a higher rate than others. They're assumed to be able to afford it, right? Regressive taxes are those in which everyone pays the same rate. Um, now, those who advocate for more progressive uh, or for more progressive systems say, well, wait a minute. Um, let's say person A makes $100,000 a year and they pay $8 in excise tax for a tank of gas they're not going to feel that $8 as much as person B, who only makes $30,000 a year, but they pay the same 8 bucks in excise taxes for the same tank full of gas. Now, apply that same theory to sales taxes or real property taxes. Even if my house is worth twice yours, my real property tax is still twice yours, even if my other income and wealth means that I'm maybe four or five times wealthier than you. Um, you will hear proposals, sometimes you'll hear people propose, let's just have a flat tax Everyone pays, say, 10% of their income. The proponents of progressive taxation say, hey, that's not fair because the wealthy people can afford the 10% and they don't feel the 10% that hard, whereas the poor, 10% to them, that's a significant amount of money. So you get into these, any of these discussions about progressive and regressive taxation tend to really revolve around this question of um, which taxes can be best burdened. Where do you best, what's the more moral way is the way probably to put this on which to impose the tax burden on certain types of people.
In these last few minutes, I want to talk about something specifically regarding something called remote sellers. This is an issue particularly in sales tax law. Um, several of the outside readings describe some challenges that states have been contending with and trying to come up with a way to collect what are called remote sales or taxes from remote sales, i.e. that means sales from catalogs and internet retailers. Um, you're going to read about, if you're reading these outside sources, you're going to read about a case called Quill versus North Dakota from 1992. The Supreme Court ruled that states couldn't tax sales unless the seller had a physical presence, or what they call in tax law, a nexus in that state. That actually wasn't a new precedent. This actually stems from a much earlier decision in 1967, the Bellis-Hess case, Bellis-Hess versus Illinois. Um, for a long time, if you bought something from a catalog or from an internet site, you only paid sales tax if that company had a physical presence or a nexus in your state. So for example, um, those of you who live in North Dakota, you've long paid sales tax on Amazon purchases because Amazon had a major fulfillment center, i.e. a warehouse up in Grand Forks. But if you bought something online from a company that didn't have a facility in North Dakota, you wouldn't have necessarily paid that sales tax. All this changed in 2018. That year, the Supreme Court overruled its own earlier ruling from the Quill case. It was a case involving South Dakota and the, the uh, company called Wayfair. Those of you who ever bought, uh, I think I bought the chair in this in this office from Wayfair. And I, I know I've bought things from, uh, from Wayfair before. They're a home decor company. They sell furniture and rugs and things along those lines. Um, there was a, basically, South Dakota passed a law saying, we're going to collect remote sales. Wayfair said, hey, you're violating the old Quill decision and the old Bellis Hess decision. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, you know what? We were wrong back in 1992 and in 1967. We're going to overturn that. So now, states can assess sales taxes on remote sales. Um, I, I gave you an article that actually lists the minimum amounts and numbers of transactions involved. And you're going to notice that at least in the states that have sales taxes, pretty much every state is now doing so or in the process of doing so, trying to figure out how to do this. Um, but let me give you a couple examples of why this becomes complicated. So let's imagine you live in Frontier, North Dakota. If you don't know where Frontier is, it's a very small bedroom community. It's right on the edge of the far south end of Fargo. If you know where the Walmart is on 52nd Avenue in the interstate, Frontier is actually just to the east of the other side of the interstate. That's technically not in the city limits of Fargo. But the city surrounds it. That Walmart is in the city of Fargo. Um, the Cashwise grocery store is also in the city of Fargo. And the Burger King is also in the city of Fargo. So Frontier is basically surrounded on three sides by the city of Fargo. Uh, if you live down there, either in Frontier or in that part of Fargo or Briarwood, which is another little independent city just to the south of here, you're in postal zip code 58104. Now, the city of Fargo assesses an extra 2% in sales tax on top of the 5% state rate. Cass County assesses an additional 0.5%. So if you buy, it doesn't matter who you are, if you go to West Acres Mall, you buy something, you pay 7.5% because West Acres is in the city of Fargo and in Cass County. If I so order something online, I live in the city of Fargo as well, I pay 7.5%. But if my friend who lives in Frontier orders something online, they should only be paying 5.5%. They don't live in the city of Fargo, although they do live in Cass County. Now, both my part of Fargo and the city of Frontier have the same zip code. So how does the remote seller figure that out? Now, nine-digit di nine zip codes help a little bit with some of that, as long as you can figure out which taxing jurisdiction sits in which nine-digit zip code. 
that's the first problem, which is sort of maybe solvable by the nine-digit zip code. The second problem is a mess. Every state defines which products are subject to tax and which are exempt or which are reduced in different ways. Let me give you a couple of concrete examples. Candy. In most states, candy is defined in the, tax, in the state tax code something along the lines of a mix of confections or sugars intended to be eaten as a snack. And pretty much all states apply the sales tax to candy. However, in some states, any product that is at least 50% flour content is considered a bread product, not candy. And bread is exempt in most states, so therefore a candy bar, which is mostly flour, like the Twix bar, is actually exempt in some states. And in Pennsylvania, home of the Hershey Company, any product containing chocolate is considered exempt from the sales tax completely. So, imagine you're trying to sell candy bars on the internet. I'm not saying this is the world's smartest business plan, but granted, just for the sake of purpose of a demonstration or discussion, assume that this is your business plan. Twix bars are taxable in some states, but not in others, and chocolate bars, which aren't at least 50% flour, are taxable everywhere, but not in Pennsylvania. Now apply that same problem to hundreds, if not thousands, of product definitions that vary from state to state. And then also add on special exemptions or reductions from the sales tax that apply to certain products. For example, farm implement parts. In most of the Midwestern states, they're not exempt from the sales tax, but they might be subject to only half the sales tax. Now you have a complicated mess. Um, and hopefully that little demonstration gives you some appreciation what complications this is going to cause for online retailers trying to figure all this out going forward. One of the outside articles that I gave you in the outside readings for this week is actually from an accounting firm, and they make their money by calculating on behalf of small retailers who sell a lot of stuff online, which products are subject to which tax, how much, and who do we send them to. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Johnson from M State Moorhead. This is State and Local Politics. Have a great day.